something huge. We are at a crossroads and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. Danielle Morrill has spent most of her life organizing data. She started with her father's business, then her first couple of jobs, and then when she was running marketing, she was still doing it. So it was only logical that she start Mattermark, a company that helps businesses around the world organize and access data. We're going to talk about that and many more things with Danielle on today's episode. I'm Kit Bodner, and this is The Growth Show. So I think, you know, what's interesting to me is that you are the only, you know, not the only, you are one of the few folks in the world that uh, I feel like I can commiserate with because you guys have this amazing marketing. You have this amazing content. You've got a blog and a newsletter that everybody reads. Um, we were fortunate in the early days, and now that we have a similar situation, but kind of what comes with that is people know a little bit less about the product and what you do and how you monetize and those things. How do you mm-hmm. how do you balance those two things? How do you think about the connection between kind of educating the market, but also promoting your product and service? Yeah, that's a hard question. It sounds like we can commiserate. Um, <laughs> yes, I battle that all the time. I think that. I always view it like if the content is good and our brand is associated in people's minds with, you know, things that are interesting, things that make them feel like they're they're smarter, things that make them feel like they can be more productive, that's kind of the first step to building a great brand. Like before we even worry about whether or not we can convert them into a lead with some kind of buying intent for our products, I think many people will never be a Mattermark customer and that's great. That's fine. But I would love for them to associate our brand with you know, tools that make you smarter and help you make better decisions. And I think the content we produce and our product both achieve that. So I think a little bit of it, of the balancing is like accepting that not everyone is going to become a sales lead and part of your sales process. And I know that is where a lot of the tension lives between sales and marketing because marketing feels like they're getting a lot of pressure to hit a, an MQL or an SQL target. Um, but they also want to build that brand that's going to create a flywheel. So the content's really part of that flywheel. Um, you know, many people will read the newsletter for years before they become a customer and maybe like not even fully realize what we do, like you said. And then when they do need it, our job really is to educate them enough so that they'll ask us or that they'll look at our at our at our product offering at that point. And we have a we have a lot we need to do on that uh, still. But I think you know that's the opportunity to already have the relationship for a long time before they need to buy anything. Yeah, I mean, I've always thought about it as that person may not be a customer of yours, but they probably know somebody who's going to be a customer of yours. And it's it, you're building that trust, that brand, but you're also building a, a word of mouth engine that has a lot of value. And you're not building it at the detriment to your, your core marketing funnel. You can still generate the leads and the MQLs you need, but you're, you're kind of playing a short-term versus long-term game is kind of how I've always thought about it. But it's, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, so part of what we do, you know, like what's important to understand about what we are trying to do long term is we think we over time could become a tool any knowledge worker could use. So these people definitely could become a customer, but the time horizon for that could be like 10 years in the future because we just haven't built the part that they need yet. 
So, but then you think about how many knowledge workers there are in the world, and it will take us a long time to talk to all of them anyway. So, like, why not get started now? Absolutely. Why not? Why not get an early start at educating the market? So, for folks who aren't aware, give us give us the breakdown. What is the product today, and kind of what 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 are you hoping to be? We just I think I got the really broad long term vision, but I'd love a little back down into kind of what it looks like now. Yeah, so what we're trying to do is make it so that business people can answer questions they have more efficiently. Um, most people's jobs revolve around some set of questions, like a salesperson is saying, who should I call on today? Uh, investor is saying, who should I invest in or who should I meet with today? And the processes that go into answering those questions right now are very manual. They usually involve a spreadsheet, you know, maybe um, you know, open up Google on one of your um, screens and you've got the spreadsheet in the other and you're collating together a bunch of information. Um, maybe you buy you know, a data source like Crunchbase, but then you end up spending a lot of time cleaning it up. Um, we feel like that is a really big waste because most people, their unique value add as a business person is not as a data monkey. It's really the insight and then the action beyond the insight that is really what makes them special and like makes them um, uniquely valuable to their company. But then they end up spending 80% of the time just doing the analysis to get the answers. Um, so that would allow them to unlock that skill. So we feel like our job is to automate a lot of the data collection, organization, and then workflow that you know goes into that initial analysis. Um, so when we started out, we were focused on helping VCs find companies to invest in, and they were doing all this process around looking up Alexa rankings, so trying to get a sense of web traffic, looking up you know mobile, maybe mobile app downloads and App Annie, which is a really expensive you know data tool just for mobile, then looking up you know Twitter followers, all this stuff, and then putting it in a spreadsheet, and then the next day it all changes and it's stale and they have to go get it again and then want to look at that data over time. So we started out just automating that human process. And then we realized salespeople and marketing people are pretty much doing the same thing. So you that's how we most got where people we are. are doing those things, right? And yeah, I, it's so sad. Like, how many <laughs> times have you created a spreadsheet, like a segmentation spreadsheet, or targets, or yeah. you know, gone through the list of people who signed up to listen to a webinar, and you're just kind of redoing the same work that somebody's already done you know, millions of times before? It just it feels like a huge waste of human capability. Yeah, you know, I think you said something really powerful for people listening, which is you started out with this manual task, just automating it, which seems simple, but it's, there's so much value in that. When we, you know, in the early days of HubSpot, we were doing the same thing. We were evaluating prospective clients, websites and marketing. And so we built a tool called website grader. Now Mm -hmm. 5 million people have used it because it's very simple. The simple use case that turns out more than just the folks here uh, at HubSpot had. And so I think, Sometimes people try to overcomplicate that kind of first version or iteration of the product. It's, it's fascinating in that way. Yeah, you know, another thing that is probably valuable to think about or our, our listeners will probably find interesting is in the beginning, we didn't have a big overarching vision to organize all the business information. We really just started with this one problem. And then as we started to solve the problem for those investor customers, a couple people adopted Mattermark with kind of more creative use cases in mind. So they were in sales and marketing. Mm-hmm. We didn't really understand what they were trying to do, but of course we, we wanted to help them. We, want, we wanted to make money and we wanted to make them successful so they would keep paying us. And it's like we just keep going down this rabbit hole and finding out more and more about the data that people mm-hmm. need, the workflows that they're trying to complete. And that leads you, you know, down another, yet another path in these like expanding concentric circles. 
until eventually you realize like this is never going to end until all the business data gets organized because even if you solve the problem for sales and marketing then you can you have could go over and like solve the problem for supply chain or solve the problem yeah. for finance there's just endless questions people don't really ever run out of questions humans are so curious <laughs> that, um, so true. that's like we didn't have that insight at the beginning it really came later so you said something interesting there which was you know, people kept coming to us with new use cases, and we wanted to be successful. We wanted to make money, and it, and how do you how do you listen to those, and how do you decide to do new things without maybe distracting either from your core mission or what the current staff is actually capable of doing? Because I imagine there are a lot of startups listening that are faced with that same challenge. Like, how do you balance that? Oh man, it's hard. I think we're constantly working on this. So I, I feel like I can give a very definitive answer, <laughs> but it's like not true because it will change. But I think. You know, we started out not wanting to get distracted and really wanting to just be good at one thing. And I feel like this is one kind of like a pendulum. So at first we were just like, no, 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 we're just going to build for VC. We're going to focus on this customer and make them successful. Um, and then as we went deeper and deeper into that use case, the two things simultaneously were happening. One was we were kind of reaching a point of diminishing return where we could add new functionality, but it was not valuable to everyone anymore. And we had this other set of customers over on the side, you know, beating down the door, wanting help. And so, you know, we didn't we didn't immediately pay attention to them, but at some point it just became very loud and, and we couldn't ignore it. And we were getting pressure um, because we we didn't have enough money to operate the company without taking funding. And when we went out to fundraise initially, it was clear that the investor market is too small. Yeah by itself. So mm -hmm. we really knew we were never going to get to just focus on that customer. So it was more like a question of not if we were going to focus on multiple things, but when and how much. And I think that's the, the struggle of these questions is like it's nuanced. The degree sure. to which you, you switch your focus and how many resources you have change that focus and when and how you you know talk about what, you know, one thing you're doing while positioning this next mm -hmm. thing. I mean, that's really the art of building a company, I think, is not if you can just get one product and one market and have that singular focus, that's amazing. But I actually don't think many businesses, even if they look really big, actually have that singular no, focus. No. It just looks like that because it's good marketing. But the reality <laughs> is that segmentation is so important to having you know good quality conversations. So um, how do I balance it? I mean, I think we are trying to just take in a lot of input from our market. So people responding to our messages people converting or not converting through campaigns, people using or not using features, and then, you know, course correcting as we go. We have to start with a hypothesis. We test it. Um, we make assumptions. A lot of times we're wrong. And then, you know, the, sort of how fast can you cycle through that process and get to the right answer because you kind of have to accept you're probably not going to just magically get it right. I mean, we, we got really lucky in the beginning. I think we did a really good job of getting something right for customers because we, we were just right there with them and we saw their manual process and we just literally automated that. But you know, as you get bigger, you start to make guesses and I think the reality is it's very, it's very hard to make the right guesses. <laughs> yeah, you were, you're completely right on that one. I, you know, what strikes me too is that I imagine you didn't spend your whole life deciding that you wanted to you know, organize the world's data and, and, and through this mission, when you like take a minute maybe occasionally and reflect, what, are, what were the surprising things that you've learned throughout your life that you now find yourself using in this yeah. in this business? 
Well, one of the weird things is that I definitely didn't set out to organize the world's business information, but I think I've accidentally been doing that. Maybe that's just because <laughs> that's like what, what knowledge workers are basically doing. Yeah. But, you know, I started out working for my dad and I don't know if you'll remember this um, company. I mean, they're still around. I just, it's very financy, but it's called Morningstar. Yeah. They have a lot of data on, um, you know, mutual funds and a lot of other financial instruments. And so my dad's business is in wealth management and I was kind of his spreadsheet monkey. This is when I'm in high school. And so, you know, I go do that. Then I go work in shipping. And in that, in that context, you know, you're basically moving bits and bytes that represent the physical stuff. So you're trying to make the supply chain efficient and process a lot of documents. So that was like another flavor of business data. Um, then I went to a startup where we collected data on all the small businesses in the U.S. We wanted to like get their, their hours of operation and what meals they served, kind of like all the stuff you'd get on Yelp, but at a time before Yelp had an open API. So you had another form of business data. So I don't know. Like, and then I, I guess like at Twilio, it was it was less about business data, um, and it was more about like you know interacting, like mm -hmm. the connections between all these different businesses. So I don't know if the, the storyline you know totally lines up, but um, even internally at Twilio, you know I was more like in the marketing. I was running marketing. Mm -hmm. So this is the first time where I'm using the data in kind of the context that we use it now, but trying to qualify customers and understand segmentation and who to go after. Um, so basically, I feel like I've been the customer of of Mattermark through my career. Mattermark <laughs> didn't exist, but it should exist. And all these different types of questions I've been trying to answer and data I've been trying to collect, and they, they all kind of go back to that same question of like, what is happening in the world? Who are all these companies? Who are all the players in the market? And like, and how are we going to engage? How are we going to do business? And I think that it's it's way too hard right now. It's still a huge amount of work. And I, and I imagine there were hundreds of thousands of people in the world at any given time doing exactly what I was doing, more or less, like same job role, same kind of data collection. And yet we felt like we were all so, you know, separated from each other that like you can you recreate these spreadsheets. It's kind of it's just a waste of human potential, I guess. Yeah, there's just a world of redundant spreadseets out there. Yeah. Exactly. It seems like you were just subconsciously kind of fed up with it and were, yeah, were ready and I, to do something about it. Yeah, and you know, you know, we were sitting around the other night, and this is definitely a weird kind of Silicon Valley realization. You're like, do we know any friends that have boring office jobs? And we were like, wow, we really don't. <laughs> um, and I think the thing is, like, people don't want to be bored. No. They don't want to describe their work as the boring office job, but like someone right now has to do these tasks. They have to get completed as an input to some other business process. Um, and of course, there's people who will do those tasks because that's just part of kind of the progression of the working world. But I love the idea that you would eventually free up these individuals from that really repetitive work and, and kind of leverage more and more of their unique intelligence to you know work on harder problems frankly most businesses complain that they're awash in data and that they don't have insight so i feel like most of the people who are getting freed up will probably just move up the stack in terms of their ability to to generate more business insight um, it seems like such a huge pain point I, I don't really think this situation takes place where you say well i guess we have all that data now we don't need these people anymore I th I think because I Most managers right. are so frustrated that they can't get more out of their teams as it is. That I think they'd be thrilled to be able to just get more output that is not just you know the labor piece. Yeah, I think I think you're, I think you're right on that. There's still 
there's miles and miles and hundreds of thousands of miles to go on that front. So uh, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be an interesting journey to to see how that stuff evolves. You know, I, one of the things I wanted to talk with you about was that, you know, you work on the management team with your husband. You also have another close friend who's on the leadership team there. Would you recommend that to people? Is that a good idea? You know, like, some days I been? think it's a great idea and sometimes <laughs> I think it's a terrible idea. So um, I think it's another one of those ones where there's no there's no clear answer. I think on the, on the positive side, I love these people and I want to spend time with them. So, you know, I love my husband and I love Andy, my co-founder. And I, I feel like um, one of the hard things about startups is that if you start a company, it becomes your whole focus. And so I don't think I'd get to spend time with them if I if I didn't have them in my business with me. So that's a huge upside is I get to spend time with two people that I you know, care a lot about and, you know, get to continue to deepen those relationships. And we also share a lot of context so we can support each other emotionally when things are hard. Um, the flip side, obviously with my husband is like, I come home at night and we're still talking about Mattermark. Uh, and I don't really see that there's a, you can say, okay, let's not talk about work anymore, but that <laughs> that lasts for like 20 seconds usually. So, um, I think it can be a little harder to turn off. Um, and I don't really know if I believe in this idea of like work-life balance um, and this idea of turning off. I think at this point, just, and maybe this is just kind of the situation that I'm in and, and learning to cope with that is I'd rather just be one person and kind of accept that work and life are pretty intertwined. Um, I think it's hardest when I'm like tired or burned out or like you know, having a week where I'm just like, I really don't want to work on this. Um, and then, you know, there's like so many things that will pull me back in, including my, you know, living with my husband. Yeah. Um, so I think it's just, a, it's like, it's harder, but better at the same time, if that makes any sense. Um, I don't know if I would recommend it though, because I think it has a lot to do with like status of the relationship. You know, we'd been married for, I think, five years when we started the company. So we already had kind of figured out our, you know, operating system for a life shared between two people. And I think that's, you know, that's tricky enough. Like if you were newly married, I think it could be a really different um, choice. And I don't know if I would have made the same choice if we were like in our first year of marriage. Yeah, no, I, I think you're probably right on that advice. And you, you talked about something interesting. You're like, I don't know if I believe in this work-life balance thing. And I, I don't know, I kind of with you in there to some degree in that, uh, you know, feel like we're lucky to be passionate about the things that we do and get to spend our time doing something that we find deeply valuable uh, you know wh why do you think not everybody feels that way like what how do we end up with some of us thinking one thing and some of us thinking the complete opposite really well I think that with mobile devices I think the boundaries are really really fuzzy right now around when you're not working and when you are working and I think there are lots of places you can work that are so intrusive you know, you're getting a Slack message at 8 p.m. on a Friday while you're at a bar from someone who's actually expecting you to, like, give them something right then. Um, and I think that that kind of behavior inside of companies makes people feel really defensive, like they need to protect their time. Um, I don't think you – I think you solve that not by telling people, okay, this is, you know, work-life balance, but by having, you know, social norms in your company and really kind of in your culture. So, for example, I try not to send emails on the weekend. Mm -hmm. I use a tool called Boomerang. I just wait until Monday morning and then my emails go out. And that way, you know, some poor, you know, person on my team who might not know me very well doesn't misunderstand that they like need, I need them to do something that weekend. Um, and that, that happens a lot, you know, and I think also the same thing with Slack. It's like, I'm not messaging people at, after work. I, unless it's an emergency, it can wait till the next day. So 
I guess I think the reason some people react so negatively um, and really want to establish that work-life balance is because their um, kind of personal boundaries are, are, are less clear. Um, the thing is, the worst thing is, you know when you're sitting at dinner table or something maybe with friends and you say, okay, like, let's stop talking about work. <laughs> yeah. Like, everybody is still thinking about work because it's probably one of the most stressful things going on in their life. And you basically like are saying, all right, just chop off this part of yourself. This part of yourself isn't welcome at the dinner table. But like for a lot of young professionals, that's a huge part of their identity at that point in time. So I, I guess I just feel like it leads to this weird unhealthy division of yourself. It's like, well, when are you supposed to talk about work? Who are you supposed to talk about work with? If you actually are trying to become great at something, probably on your mind all the time, just like if you're training for a sport. Um, so I guess I just feel like I'm wondering what people are really trying to get when they say work-life balance. And sometimes I think it's really just that they want some boundaries so they can like, you know, not, not be stressed out at nine o'clock at night when they're at the bar with friends or whatever. Yeah. I sometimes think it's that they don't enjoy what they do and the balance they're trying to find is that they're, they want to free up time to do the thing that they actually want to do. And they haven't figured out how to properly like monetize that, that thing that they're passionate about, which I'm sure that's part of it. it. I mean, I think I'm, you know, I've got a myopic view because in my eyes, I'm like, well, if you, if there's something you want to do, <laughs> then going and figuring out how to get paid to do that thing you love, I think is one of the most important, you know, missions in life, I guess, for people, because I think happiness is just so, I mean, I don't know. I don't think I could live that way. I don't think I, like, say I, I mean, say I wanted to be a ballerina or whatever, like, I don't know. I just feel like it's very hard to, to love something and not be working on it. I just think I, I, I don't know. I like, I hope people listening who are like thinking of quitting their jobs, like do it, quit. Like your time's so precious. Your life's so precious. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I think the flip side of that is that I think there's some people out there that, you know, I think uh, we all have this stage of our life where we don't know what that thing is. Yeah. Right. And I think that's sometimes that leads to it too, is that they just, you haven't yet, you've yet to discover that thing that you are so deeply passionate about that you want to, go and just spend all of your time doing it. That's a that's a hard realization to find. You, you need to live a full enough life to even discover that, I think, sometimes. Totally. And I think, you know, one of the good stop gaps for that, I mean, it's not the perfect one, but is to maybe be a little less hard on yourself about that because it's, I don't think it's so much like one thing. Like, Mattermark, finding out that we were going to organize the world's business information doesn't really change like what I'm what I fundamentally want like I like to, I just like to do things I'm good at right it's fun <laughs> to work on things you're good at and feel like you're making an impact in your own life and on other people and I think sometimes people think it's going to be one thing like one really narrowly defined thing that is like their passion and that's narrative fallacy right like I can say oh I'm really passionate about organizing the world's business information but that's not really my life's purpose that's my business's you know vision yeah um, sometimes I think people expect to like have it be very specific because I feel like throughout my life, it's mostly been like, do things I'm good at and make things efficient. I don't know why I just like that. And, um, that's like, that's as clear as it is. I don't have any clearer definition of like my driving core motivation. Well, this begs the question, what are you good at? Right. And I guess I'm good at making things efficient. So <laughs> this is nice and circular. Um, as you, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, the, and getting good at things, right? The learning curve. So I'm always trying to find some part of my yeah. self or my career where I'm at the bottom of the learning curve. So I feel like I can have that sense of being a beginner and progressing because I think that feels amazing. Like you feel, I don't know, it makes me feel like I'm 12 years old every time I have to learn something new. There's that sense of being really clueless and then like slowly progressing and I think it's very 
I don't know, refreshing to continue to feel that way. So, um, yeah, being good at things, like getting good at things is probably more what I'm getting at is like the process of learning. What do you, what are you getting good at right now? Oh man, right now I'm getting good. I'm kind of re getting good at painting. So I painted as a kid and, um, paint this like very abstract stuff. And I think it's like color theory and just, it's like getting good at painting. What does it mean to be good at painting? Like, do I need, you know, external approval? Like do people need to tell me it's good? And I think for me, it's more like I need to think it's good. And that's a really interesting thing because the, the definition is very subjective. So, um, it may be one of those things where I'll never think I'm good enough, which is like an interesting thing to, to, to deal with in, in, as a perfectionist. Well, that might be why you like painting. Yeah, so because you can't, can't because you can't maybe be as good as you ever wanted to be. Why'd you come back to it if you did it as a kid? Like, why'd you come back to it now? Um, I think it's just something that I always, I remembered as a kid. You know, you start with a blank canvas, and then there's something there, and there's something really invigorating about like stepping back and looking at it, and being like, "That's only there because I made it." Like, if I hadn't done that, you know, combination of tasks, like that just wouldn't exist. And then to say, like, that's only there because I made it and I like it is, I just think, you know, as a kid, a really great thing to, like, learn about yourself. Like, oh, I can make things from nothing. You know, the other thing is you've been you've been at this startup thing for a while. And it's what's interesting to me about the situation you're in, it's not something you can walk away from. It's not like you can say, I'm fed up with this. I'm going <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm to just leave. It's like, no, you're, you're kind of there and you're in it. And there's lots of people that depend on you. How do you? how do you deal with that I guess for lack yeah. of a better better way of thinking about it no I think it's the right way to think about it um yeah sometimes it's it takes on a, it's very grave sometimes it takes on a lot of gravity um especially you know if things aren't going well or if people aren't happy and, and you know things don't always go well and people aren't always happy so you it does become very serious at times and you think about all the people whose jobs are you know depending on the company and and what they want and their happiness and their life and their career. And I think, um, I don't know. I mean, I think, how do you deal with it? Well, I think it really helps to try to be a good person. Um, I know that sounds really trite, but <laughs> um, to me, being a good person in that context would be like actually caring about people's feelings, actually asking people what they'd like, you know, what would make them happy, what they need. Um, I think that's really the function of HR, but I think people don't really think about HR very much in startups in the beginning. Um, and I also hate the name HR. It like, <laughs> just makes it feel so impersonal. We um, call it people ops here. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's human beings, right? You've yeah. got a bunch of people, and they could get up in the morning and do anything that they want. And of all the things they could do, they chose to work at our company. And I feel like there's a certain amount of things you need to do to honor that choice um, and to also increase the odds that they'll make the same choice tomorrow. Um so I, I think it's more, we call it little drops of happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not really about any one thing you do. I mean, you want to set up the right systems. You want to pay people on time. But that stuff's table stakes. I think that the little drops of happiness, the asking people, truly asking how they are or truly having a one-on-one where you're exploring what they want to do with their career and they feel like a human, um, that's, the, that's the most important thing. I take it pretty seriously, actually. I think, I don't know if that's the perception like of startups. I know there have been some stories lately of maybe companies not taking some of these things as seriously as they should, but I, I take it really seriously. Because I've also had to let people go when things didn't work out. So I also realize like the risk that 
we're all taking together is is real. Um, I think as my employees getting, you know, I'm getting older and my employees are also older and having kids, that's also a really important thing that I think about is like, it's not just the person who's coming to work, it's also their family and, and their future and they're making their plans and they're buying their house and they're buying their first car and celebrating their kid's first birthday. And, and that's all, you know, tied in some way to the company. Um, not that I'm responsible for like providing for everything, but mm-hmm. just that like, there's a whole life there. And You're contributing you to it. You can't ignore that. Yeah, you can't ignore it. And so, you know, you've, you're early on in what is a big vision for what you're trying to accomplish. Like a lot of people probably listening, how do you get somebody to, to come on board and buy into that vision? You mentioned that they, or a few minutes ago, that like, oh, they choose to, to come and be here and work here with us. How do you get them to want to make that choice? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, it's a combination of what do they want and what do we need and want as a company and then how to find alignment between those things. So, um, I think the first thing is to figure out what's kind of their personal currency. So what motivates them? Is it money? Is it what they're going to build? Is it big vision? Is it just being happy day to day? You know, some combination of these things. Um, so that's kind of, that's their ask of, of any employer. That's what they need. And a lot of people don't know what that is explicitly. So you have to find ways to ask questions to kind of get at these things. Um, and then you have to figure out like, well, what do we have to offer? You know, do we have, what this person needs. If someone wants something really stable, we might not be that company for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but if someone wants to build something that's like potentially their life's work, especially as a software engineer, then we might have something for them. If someone wants to make a lot of money, we might not be the answer today, but we, if they're interested in maybe, maybe making a lot of money over a longer term window and they're wanting to take some big risk, then we, so it's like kind of that matchmaking. Yeah. I think most people are not nearly um, explicit enough about what they want. I mean, you kind of touched on this earlier. A lot of people don't know what they want, Yeah. but they don't know what they want in this grand sense. But I think if you ask people specific questions and you just get really curious about, you know, what have you really liked in your past work? What did you find motivating? What caused you to leave? You know, what was your best boss? Like, what was your worst boss? Like those questions are not just throwaway things to fill the time in the interview slot. It's really trying to figure out like, you know, what made you, what makes you tick professionally and, and like, do we think we have a match? So then also we have to figure out what we actually have to offer. So, you know, companies are always trying to define their values. I think a lot of times that stuff is more sound bites, like it's aspirational, what the company wants to be, yep. but you also kind of have to figure out like, what are you right now? What are you offering right now? And it might be different from like what you want to be, but people are, if you sell them the way your company's going to be in the future and then they join you they're not going to trust you. They're going to become disillusioned really quickly. So um, I think it has to be a very honest process of, of kind of a trade of like your time and your care and your thought gonna, are going to go into this job. We should put some time and care and thought into like what you're getting beyond money. And how do you, I guess the, the, the follow-up to that is you got to put time and care into what the company's about you have a million things going on. You started this company. How do you sit back and take a minute to say, hey, this is what this company's about. This is the values that, that myself and everybody here that works here, we represent. Like, how do you find the time? Um, it's really hard. I mean, it's funny. I was just working on our most, most recent strategy deck. I mean, it's never done. That's the first thing is like you're constantly figuring out that you haven't communicated enough or the right things or, or things are changing and people need to hear a different message packaged a different way. Um, I mean, I think it is, it's my job 
like it's you don't it's not about finding time I mean I know that sometimes I feel like I have to push other things away to make room for this but I think that communication and setting that strategy and that vision and then imbuing that through the entire process of like you know making sure every manager also understands these things and that it's part of you know the way they talk and the way they communicate and the way they're thinking um that's I think that's actually what the CEO job becomes at a certain point and I I, you know, I have a fully formed executive team now. Um, I have, you know, middle management team, company 60 people. So we're still fairly small, but I think there are enough people now where I don't need to do as much of the day-to-day stuff as I used to. I mean, I miss it. I, mm-hmm. I like being good at that. It's honestly much more gratifying because you get, you know, that immediate sense of having accomplished something. But someone has to sit back and, and look at these things holistically and kind of represent all the different voices in the company. And I, I think that's my job now. So you are doing a startup, you're in San Francisco. I got to think you got a u- unique perspective. Like what frustrates you about the startup world these days? Oh like man, if- so many things. I'm so <laughs> jaded. I don't like it. I'm trying not to be that person. I mean, I think there's a short term mindset. that's probably the most damaging for people because it just takes a while to build something that really matters. And, um, I think people sometimes are thinking like, I'm going to do Y Combinator and I'm going to raise around and then I'm going to flip my company to Google or something. And I'm, I'm really happy for people who do that. I think it's, it's great if you've created so much economic value that, you know, the greatest technology company in the world wants to buy you. That's amazing. But that's just not what happens for most people. And I think that that short term thinking just breeds a culture of like kind of constantly churning through ideas, not really committing to make, to doing something hard. And you just see a lot of people building a lot of stupid things that are like, <laughs> not, you know, really very meaningful. And on, on one level, I don't know if it matters. Like it's, it's not bad, uh, you know, for the ecosystem and it's not bad for the individual because people still learn so much in that process. I just always wonder, you know, what we could have in the world if that energy went into more important things, but then sometimes also stupid and unimportant things turn and turn out to be extremely valuable and helpful to people. So it's really tough to judge that, you know, from the outside. Um, I'm sure that lots of people thought Facebook was stupid and unimportant. And then of course <laughs> now it connects the whole world. So it's always a little bit tricky because you, you always have this sense you don't want to, you don't want to be too hard on someone because they just might invent something great and you want to encourage the, you know, that possibility. But I also see a lot of like me too stuff. And I also see a lot of people kind of doing a startup because it feels like the thing you do after college mm-hmm. if you're, you know, of a certain group of people. And I think sometimes there's not a lot of direction in it. And it's just like, well, those resources, that, you know, that, that staff or the, those funding dollars really could have gone to someone who was, you know, trying to do something more meaningful. But, like, that's all in the eye of the beholder. Um, and I think part of the value, the flip side of that is having all those people here, even if they're not always working on the most meaningful thing, at least they're here and there's this density of people trying to, to build things. Um, so it's kind of a double edged sword. I think sometimes it just creates a lot of noise. And so you have to figure out how to find the signal. I think that's probably the right way to think about it. It's like, there's a signal to noise challenge here and we all can't be skeptics all the time, but, uh, sure. Sometimes sure. seems it's easier to be a skeptic than anything else on a lot of this. I think it's hard to get, you know, if people believe they're going to change jobs every two or three years, you just have this ongoing business continuity challenge of making sure you have enough people who understand what you're trying to do. And I think this becomes really difficult when you're doing harder technology because some things that we're building 
you know, like, like making it so you can do natural language search of business information the same way you search Google, that's just something that's going to take us years. And um, sometimes people, you know, lose patience. And then when you lose them, you lose time because you have to go back and, and you know, find someone else who can do what they could do. And some of these things are so specialized that it's not just easily replaceable. You know, you can't just, it's not a one for one replacement rate with software engineers. Like people have very specific skills and focuses and passions. And, um, I think that is probably the most frustrating thing is just everyone could start a company. So why should they join your company? It seems like the, the tax of having a worthy and ambitious problem to solve. That's, that's a tough thing to do that you, you all are doing. And it's, I think it's awesome. I uh, really appreciate you taking time out of what is a hectic day as a startup founder uh, to chat with us and share some of what you've learned with everybody who's out there trying to do the same thing. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was great to chat with you too. Perfect. Thanks, Danielle. Really appreciate your time. Refer a friend to subscribe to this podcast and you can be featured in an episode. If you refer five friends to subscribe to the show, you get a shout out in our weekly email newsletter. Refer 10, I'll give you a shout out on our next episode. 20, you get a featured segment on the next episode. And if you refer 100 friends, you get the entire episode to yourself. That's right, 100 referrals and you become the guest. Tell them to subscribe to the show in their favorite podcast app, then head over to bit.ly slash TGS refer a friend to give you credit for the referral.